Thanks for checking out the weekly sermon from Church of the Resurrection. We pray that God will use this message to speak to you and help you grow in your faith journey. We'd like to invite you to join us next week at one of our services, whether in live worship online at court.org live or in person at one of our locations in the Kansas City area. Church of the Resurrection is one church in multiple locations. To learn more about our service times and ministries, please visit core.org. We hope you enjoy this message. We've sung the Christmas carols, we have heard the Christmas story read, but now we're going to reflect upon it a little bit before we enact it through the passing of the candlelight. So I want to begin with a uh, TikTok video somebody shared with me, and I just thought it was awesome. It, it takes place in England and Great Britain, and there is a, a little boy, he's six years old, I'm guessing he's in kindergarten, maybe first grade, and he just found out a couple of weeks ago the role that he was going to get to play in the school nativity pageant. His name is Milo, and I just love his enthusiasm for the role he's chosen for. Take a listen. Guess what I am for the nativity? I'm a classic one. Classic role, is it? Classic part? Yeah. Um, Joseph? No. Uh, uh, one of the three wise men? No. But it's a classic part? Yeah. Okay. Um, you tell me then, because... I'm door holder number three, I'll be holding doors. That's amazing! Holding doors for who? Um, probably... Um, Joseph and Mary. Oh my gosh, were you pleased when they said that? And I was like, I'm a door holder, get in there, let's go, yeah. Gosh, I love that. I love his enthusiasm. Door holder number three, that's the title of today's sermon. And I want to begin, as we move into the Christmas story, I want to begin where Luke begins. So, by the way, Luke tells us more about what happened at Christmas than any other, well, really, only Matthew in the New Testament tells us the Christmas story in addition to Luke. And in Matthew's gospel, John tells it in a very different way, but Matthew tells it one way, pretty short. In Luke's gospel, we have two chapters. Luke chapter one, the birth of John the Baptist, the announcement to Mary that she's going to have a child. You get to Luke chapter two, and verses one through 20 are all what happens on Christmas. Christmas Day. Now, it begins actually with an announcement from the emperor. So here's how Luke chapter 2 begins. In those days, Caesar Augustus declared that everyone throughout the empire should be enrolled in the tax list. And then he's going to devote the next five verses to telling us about this, uh, this census, this registration for taxes. So Luke's telling of the Christmas story starts with politics and taxes. He mentions two rulers, uh, Emperor Augustus and also Quirinius, the governor of Syria. And, and so what happens for uh, Mary and Joseph? Joseph Joseph has to go back to his hometown. Mary and Joseph are living in Nazareth. They're going to go back to Bethlehem, which is Joseph's hometown, because this is what was required by the census to be counted in your hometown. So let me just show you on a map where this is. So uh, this is Nazareth up here in the north. This is the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River runs right through here, the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea down here. And they're gonna make their way across, probably across the uh, route of the patriarchs. They're gonna go up and down mountain ranges and they're gonna come down here. They're gonna go past Jerusalem and make their way to Bethlehem. Now, while we're here on this map, let me just show you a couple things. <clears throat> this is the West Bank right here. And this, excuse me, this is the Gaza Strip right here. This is the West Bank that you see right here. Uh, 
Jerusalem is half in and half outside of the West Bank. Bethlehem is entirely in the West Bank. And so, uh, so when we look at this map, it, it just gives us a sense of what was happening. They traveled 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And when they finally arrived there, this is what we read. Well, we know that they arrived there and, uh, and it becomes time for Mary to give birth. And then we read uh, the account of, the, of what actually happened at Christmas. So it's interesting, 20 verses but only one verse to tell us what happened when Jesus was born, exactly what happened at the moment of his birth. Here it is. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, inn is probably uh, not the accurate word, but it's the one that we've gotten used to as though there was a holiday inn in Bethlehem. Bethlehem only had 100 people. There probably wasn't an inn there. And the word that's used here is a Greek word, kataluma, which means guest room. It doesn't mean inn, it means guest room. And so what likely happened is they arrived in in Joseph's hometown and all the homes were full. These were peasants who lived there. They had a, they had one, typically one a one extra room in their home. It was like a, a, almost like a balcony that overlooked the rest of it, a loft. And all of the lofts were filled. There was no place for them to stay. Now, we don't get all that in Luke's gospel. All we get is there was no room for them in a guest room. And so they end up giving birth wherever they can find. And and we have the sense that it was in a stable because, because a manger is mentioned. So these are the two details that are important, a manger and no room. There was no room for them. There was a manger. A manger is an animal's feeding trough. You can see a picture of a manger right here. If you travel across the ancient world, you're going to find lots of them. They're all over the place. They don't deteriorate. And that's where the animals were fed. They carved it out of stone. They put straw in there or, or grain or hay or whatever that the animals would eat. That would have been uh, Joseph's, excuse me, Jesus first crib. So there was a manger. Luke tells us that three times, and he's probably means several things by, but one is to say that wherever Jesus was born, there were animals there, which probably means it was a cave. And in that cave, uh, there was a manger to feed the animals. So, so you, a cave, I say, because stables were caves and basically kept in caves in, uh, in the Holy Land in Bethlehem. There wasn't wood to build barns. Instead, you found in Bethlehem, there's all kinds of naturally occurring caves. And so people would build houses on top of them or next to them, and they would put their animals inside the cave. That was like a basement for them. Now, the cave where Christians have gone since at least the second century, maybe before remembering the birth of Jesus is the one you see in the picture right now. And this is the cave of the nativity. Now, of course, it doesn't look much like a cave, but when you get in there, it's stone all around. And, uh, and this is where the church has said Christ was born in this very cave. And so Jesus born in a stable, which was likely in a cave. His first crib was a manger. All right, many of the, of the Christians in the Holy Land are Palestinians. So, uh, so the, the, a very small minority of Palestinians are Christians, but most of the Christians in the Holy Land are Palestinians. And Bethlehem has a, Palest- has a Palestinian Christian mayor. Beth Sahor is nearby, also uh, Palestinian Christians. And, uh, and so when they look at this story, I've sat down and eaten in the home, broken bread with Palestinian Christians there. When they tell this story, it means something different to them than it means to me. To me, it's Luke's way of saying that Jesus cared about the lowly, the outcast. He came and in essence was born uh, homeless that night. There was not a place for them except for the stable. When Palestinian Christians hear this, they say Jesus identified with us. He understood what it was, what it was like to, to struggle, what it was like to, to live in, you know, in adversity and difficulty. Uh, I saw a picture the other day of a, a Palestinian church in Bethlehem. It's the church, it's a Lutheran church. And, uh, and outside they had created their own nativity scene. And it just really struck me from their perspective, what they're feeling right now. Take a look at this nativity scene and you can see the Christ child there and then rubble all around. And once more, they're saying, even in the rubble, even in the destruction in, in Gaza, Christ is there 
Christ is in the midst of the darkness with us. He comes to us. When God came to us on earth, he came to us as a homeless child born to peasants in a time when the emperor had soldiers all over the land and it was hard and life was difficult and God came that way. And so we remember that when we're walking through the darkness that God came to us in the darkness. All right, I wanna move on. And, and Luke, after a sparse account of the birth of Jesus, the actual birth of Jesus, he goes on to tell us a lot more when it comes to the shepherds. And most of our Christmas carols recognize that because there are more about the angels and the shepherds than the actual place where Jesus is born. But this is what we read. In that region, Luke says, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, I've had several occasions to interview and spend time with, with uh, Bedouins, with the shepherds in and around Bethlehem. If you visit Bethlehem, there's a large city there now, not just 100 people that live there in Jesus' day, but around on the hillsides, there are still shepherds all over. And several years ago, I was with a, with a, a family of shepherds, and they were herding a sheep, a, a, a herd of about maybe 40 or 50 sheep, and they invited me to come with them. And so we went out, and we went looking for uh, something for them to eat. Take a look. Now, I don't know what you see here, but when I look at this, there's nothing green around there. There's hardly anything to eat. And I look at these shepherds like this young man and these guys on their donkeys, and I think this is something like those shepherds looked like who were out there keeping watch over their flock by night. These were the night shift shepherds. Now, shepherds were, and the first Noel is, is probably accurate when it describes shepherds talking about them being poor because they were poor. At least that's what it seems from everything we know. It describes them as certain poor shepherds and fields as they lay keeping their sheep. A UN report a couple of years ago says that the average shepherd among the Palestinians, the Bedouins, makes about $300 a month. 40% of them don't have electricity. That's still true to this day. And when you spend time with them, you realize many of them haven't been very well educated. Some of them really struggle. There's a few that, that have some means, but most of them do not. And I've stayed in their tents. I've had a chance to, not overnight, but had a chance to have tea in their tents. I've broken bread with them. And, uh, and so you get a sense of what these people are like. And here's what I, what I love about this story. And Luke wants to make sure you see this that of all the people who could have been invited to celebrate the birth of Jesus, Jerusalem is just a few miles away. They could have invited anybody. Who did, they, who did God invite? Who did the angels invite? They invited poor shepherds, the night shift shepherds. Luke wants you to see this and understand this. Then I want you to hear what Luke says. Luke says, then an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. Suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. Or I still prefer the old King James, uh, peace and goodwill to all people. So I wanna focus for just a second on what they say is the source of that peace and the source of the good news and the great joy. That is the identity of Jesus. So when Mary gives birth, we don't hear uh, that this is the, the savior, the Messiah, the Lord. It's the angels speaking to the shepherds, the night shift shepherds who hear these words that Jesus, the child who was born in Bethlehem is a savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. I wanna unpack those three titles for just a second. The first one, Lord, it means master, ruler, or sovereign. It means the highest authority in a given realm. And when we talk about Jesus as Lord, and by the way, the apostle Paul says that this is the basic confession of the Christian faith. The earliest Christian creed was these three words, Jesus is Lord. That is, he's the, he is my highest authority. He is the one I seek to follow. I seek to do his will. I seek to know what he wants me to do and I'm gonna do it. And I'm gonna suggest this to you. Every one of us has a Lord. 
Every one of us has somebody who is the final decision maker and, and in your life. And, and what I would suggest is that your Lord, if you're a Christian, is not your spouse. It's not your boss at work. It's not the governor. It's not the president. Jesus is Lord. So when I wake up in the morning and our congregation has heard me say this many times, I slip to my knees next to my bed. I put my hands on my bed like this. And, and sometimes I'll put my, you know, my hands together and I pray and I give thanks to God and I, and I pray for my family and everyone else. But somewhere in that prayer, I'm going to acknowledge once more, Jesus is Lord. I'm going to say, Jesus, my life belongs to you. What do you want me to do today? How do you want me to live? What, what is it that, that I can do? Help me to pay attention and to see where you need me so that I can do your will. Because the most important thing in my life is to know what his will is and to do it. And when I've done that, I'm going to find everything else is better. I love better. I enjoy life better. My life, my, my mental health is better. Every part of my life is better when I've said, Jesus, you're in charge. You're the captain of my ship. Lead me, guide me, and do with me whatever you want. And so when the, when the shepherds heard this, they didn't fully understand it, but, but the identity of this baby who was born is he is born to be Lord. Jesus is Lord. All right, the second thing we read is that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. And so, uh, so this word, Gabriel says to them, uh, he is uh, not only the Savior, but he is the, uh, he is the Christ, the Messiah, and the Lord. So we're going to come back to Savior in a minute. But when he tells me he's the Christ or the Messiah, this word means, literally it means to be anointed. So one is anointed with oil. When you're anointed with oil uh, by, a, by a priest when in, in Israel, when the high priest anointed somebody with oil, uh, to be set apart to rule, they became the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And that is what made them king. And sometimes a high priest would be anointed with oil. So when it's said that Jesus, uh, the baby being born, uh, that had just been born was the Christ or the Messiah, it says that he's the king. He is the king who will rule over his people. Now there was already a king. There was King Herod. And he was a, at one point might've been a good king, but he was a pretty terrible king before he died. And he died just after Jesus was born. And, uh, and he had managed to kill his own sons and he killed his wife because he was afraid they were usurping his power. He was paranoid, just an old paranoid, uh, power hungry, idolatrous king. And then there was the emperor, Emperor Augustus, who ruled over the entire Roman empire. But the angels were announcing another king who was gonna rule in a different kind of way. By the way, when it comes to anointing uh, kings and, uh, and, and, you know, setting them apart for God's purposes, King Charles III was anointed not long ago. Uh, you may have seen it. He uh, sat, you couldn't actually see the anointing. He sat in a chair in his throne, took off his robe. He had just a, a simple undergarment on and the, and the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury comes and anoints his head and his heart and his hands in service to God. All right, now Luke's account of Jesus' birth, I want to pause for just a minute and recognize Luke's account of Jesus' birth is juxtaposing Jesus against, uh, against Emperor Augustus. So you might not catch this, but it's important to know he starts off telling the story with Emperor Augustus' name. And, uh, and then he's going to use titles for Jesus that were used commonly of the emperor. So the emperor, uh, Emperor Caesar Augustus, born 63 BC, dies 14 AD. Uh, he rules for 41 years. And by the time Jesus is born, he's 59 years old. He's been ruling for over 20 years. And as he's ruling, uh, Emperor Augustus is called uh, the divine son of God. Uh, that shows up on the, on the coins from that time. He is uh, Diva Filius. He is the son of God or son of a God. He is called divine himself. Uh, he, is, uh, he is called Lord. He is called the savior of the world. All of these titles that show up in Luke's account, and Luke is, is likely a Greek Christian. He knows, you know, he knows very well the Greco-Roman world. And he's saying, one who is greater than the emperor Augustus has been born. And he rules. 
And he rules not by the power of 250,000 foot soldiers that Emperor Augustus had. He rules in the hearts of human beings and his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom lives within us. And so this is the one whose birth we're celebrating is one who came to be a king and he's going to rule over us and in us and through us. And his kingdom is not of this world. And our highest allegiance, if he's Lord, our highest allegiance isn't to the present or our boss or our spouses. Our highest allegiance is to Jesus and we consider him a king. So it's a story of two different kings, two different lords, one who will live his life demonstrating selfless and sacrificial love and calling other people to do the same, calling them to follow him. And in the process to be a part of changing the world, starting with their own hearts. This is what we find. Finally, we find the the word savior. This is actually how the account begins. He's the savior, the Messiah or Christ, the Lord, savior. Savior means to be a rescuer, deliver. In Greek, it's soter, means to save, to rescue, to deliver, to help. And so if somebody's in trouble and you rescue them, you've been their soter, their savior. So Jesus is savior in a way that, that Emperor Augustus was not. Emperor Augustus saved the Roman empire from continued battles by killing all of his enemies. And by killing those who were, you know, by sending his soldiers to fight against those who, uh, who would fight against him. And so, or, you know, who wished him not to be emperor. So he brought the peace of Rome, which was also called the peace of Augustus to the Roman empire by force. And Jesus isn't going to do that. He's going to show a very different way. He's going to offer a different kind of peace, a peace that starts in our hearts, peace with God, and then peace with other people. And he's going to call his disciples to be peacemakers, blessed are the peacemakers, And he's going to call them to turn the other cheek and he's going to call them to love their neighbor, but also to love their enemy. This is what Jesus does. His teachings, what he does, he he offers us and he teaches us uh, forgiveness. So Jesus, we often say is the savior. That is, he died on the cross. Many people will say he died on the cross to forgive our sins. That's absolutely true. But Jesus, the savior is far beyond just having your sins forgiven. He wants to save you from your sins. He wants to save you from the inside out, from, from committing sins, from that is straying from the path. That's what the word sin means in, in hamartia in Greek. It means to stray from the path. He doesn't want you to stray from the path. He wants to change your heart in such a way so that you live differently. And so that we're all going to sin throughout our lives, but we're going to sin less because we're following Jesus and the Holy Spirit is at work within us. So I think he's meant to rescue us from the darkness, to save us from the darkness in our own souls that leads us to greed or lust or pride or arrogance or indifference or wrath or bigotry. He wants to save us from these things, the worst parts of the human condition, the things that lead to war and violence and all kinds of other injustice are all things that are in our hearts. And he wants to save us from that, not just to forgive us after we've done it. He wants to save us from ourselves and from our brokenness. And when we seek to follow him and we invite his Holy Spirit to work inside of us, he slowly and by degrees changes us. We take sometimes two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes we take one step forward and two steps back. But the journey of faith is a journey in which we're being changed Scripture says from glory into glory, we're being changed, transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what he gives us is he gives us forgiveness, not only forgiveness for us, but forgiveness towards other people, mercy in place of resentment. He gives us love in place of hate. He gives us generosity in place of greed. He gives us a heart of compassion in place of a heart of indifference. And in all of this, he heals us and changes us and delivers us and then sends us into the world to live differently. That's the light coming into the darkness and pushing back the darkness is the change that he works in our hearts. And that's something that the emperor Augustus could not legislate even if he wanted to. But Jesus does this in our hearts when we choose to follow him. We celebrate that at Christmas. And all of this leads me back to the words of Gabriel. When he first spoke to the shepherds, uh, this is what he said. He said, behold, he said, don't be afraid. And then he said, behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Think about that. Who doesn't want good news? 
Who doesn't long for great joy? And in the process of that, the angel's offering us this and he, and he points to Jesus. Jesus is gonna be the ultimate source of that. Good news, great joy for all people, not just for some. All right, and then we read these words after the angel Gabriel pointed to Jesus as Savior and Messiah and Lord. We read, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, Gloria and excelsis Deo, and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. And again, I, I still love the old King James. It's uh, peace on earth and goodwill to all people. Goodwill to all people. Now, I think about this in the world that we live in and we find all of these things seem to be in some sense false promises. If we think that Jesus by his birth was gonna instantaneously bring uh, good news and great joy for all people and peace on earth because we look around and that's not what we find. And this particular Christmas, as we're thinking about what's happening in the land where Jesus is born, that's not what we find. Listen carefully. These things that the angels promise. This is the point I want you to hear. These things that the angels promise, good news, great joy, peace on earth, they didn't happen simply because Jesus was born. And they wouldn't happen simply because he died on the cross and rose again. Jesus called people to follow him. He called them to follow him. He called them to be his disciples. He called them to take up their cross. He called them to live a life of love. He called them to love God with all that was within them and to love their neighbor as they love themselves, to love their enemy even, he said. He called them to do all of these things. He showed them, he taught them, he showed them what it means to be a human being, what God intends for us. And then he sent them out into the world to live so that the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. We don't just simply pray that in the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We seek to live that. And that started with the birth of Christ. So, the last few weeks here at Resurrection, we've learned, uh, we've been studying celestial angels and earthly angels in the Bible. So there's over 300 mentions the, of angels in the Bible. Some people struggle with that idea of an angel, a separate category of created being, and, uh, and other people fully embrace it. In the Bible, they're mentioned 300 times. And as we look at them, other than a couple of categories that, that are around the throne of God and they have wings, all the angels that show up on earth, they just look like people. They just look like ordinary people. Uh, maybe you saw the movie Michael about the archangel uh, Michael and uh, John Travolta. Uh, angels don't look like this in the Bible. They look more like this. That's John Travers, who's playing, uh, who's playing uh, an angel in It's a Wonderful Life, uh, Clarence Goodbody. And, uh, and they look like ordinary people, just strangers who come along so that the people who encounter these angels don't know that they're really encountering angels. They have to sort of figure it out after the fact. And the angels come to bring a message from God. And in addition to the message from God, sometimes they come to help when there's no one else there to help. Now, in the Bible, uh, there are celestial angels and then there are earthly angels. The word angelos is the word from which we get our word angel, simply means messenger. And so sometimes humans were called angels. And sometimes then there are celestial beings that are called angels. And here's the thing, I think most often when God wants something done, a message to be proclaimed, a message to be conveyed, some act that needs to happen of mercy and kindness, he's not gonna send angels from heaven. Clarence, good, good odd body is not gonna show up. Instead, he wants to use people. He wants to use us as his earthly angels, his earthly messengers who are gonna do his work and speak his word and, and, and live that. That's what we learned these last few weeks. That's what we learned today. 
So when we think about the meaning of Christmas and what those angels are promising, peace on earth, goodwill to all people, good news of great joy, that doesn't just happen because Jesus was born. It happens because people listen to the gospel. It happens because they decide to follow him. They pay attention to what he did. They pay attention to his spirit working in them. And then they try to live out this gospel in the world. We become the hands that he uses to bring peace on earth and goodwill to all people. We become the the voices that he uses to bring good news of great joy for all people. We are the ones God wishes to use to accomplish these things. And sometimes we think, well, what can I do? I, I, don't, I don't have any particular skills or abilities or how can I do anything? But you know what? It's not big things most of the time. It's small things. As Mother Teresa once said, now St. Teresa, small things done with great love change the world. You can change the world for somebody somewhere almost every day. Yesterday, I was on my way into the office and, uh, and I was driving uh, north on Mission Road coming from my house. I get to 151st and Mission Road and there's a car that's stuck there. Now, this is a four-lane, you know, four-way intersection and, and there's not much room to pass. And there was a car that was stuck. It had its blinkers on and there were two women sitting inside. There were cars that were, you know, making their way around. And I, I you know, sat there watching as I got up to the stop sign and, you know, nobody was stopping to help. And I, I am coming through and I'm thinking about, you know, angels and the call to, you know, to be God's presence for people. And I thought I should stop and help. So I almost didn't stop. I was running late for a meeting, but I thought, no, I'm going to go ahead and stop. So I pulled in the driveway, you know, one house, uh, one house down and I jogged across the street and I knocked on the window and I said, are you okay? And, and they rolled the window down. It was a mother and her teenage daughter. And, and the mom said, you know, I think the gas gauge was pretty low. And I said, do you think maybe you ran out of gas? And she said, I think that's what happened. I think I ran out of gas. And, uh, and here's the thing. I said, do you have anybody coming to help you? She had her cell phone in her hand. She said, my family's all in Texas. I said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get you, you know, we'll get your gas. And then I began thinking, now the closest gas station, if she was going to walk was four miles down the road. That's a long walk. And, and I thought, okay, if I go down there to get the gas, I don't have a gas can. So I called the church office, which is five minutes from this intersection. And, uh, and I reached out to our facilities guys. And, and uh, one of the guys said, well, no, we got gas cans here. I said, well, would you mind being the angel today? Would you mind taking, uh, you know, a, a can of gas, a, a, you know, one of those canisters of gas. Would you mind taking it and helping her get back on the road? And, and then I asked her, I said, now, you know where the gas station is, right? It's just right down the street. She said, oh yeah, I'm a teacher here in Blue Valley. I said, okay, well, we're going to get you straightened out. And, uh, and I left and, and five minutes later, an angel of the Lord showed up named Brian and he had his gas can and he filled it, you know, topped it or whatever amount he could put in there so she could make it to the gas station. Here's what I know. When you're sitting there and you don't know what to do and your family aren't in town and you're sitting there with your daughter and it's a four mile walk to quick trip, what you need is an angel. And what I paid, you know, what I watched for 10 minutes, I watched, I sat off to one side. I was, you know, as I was coming, I didn't see anybody stop. I'm sure there were people who stopped after that. Maybe there were some before and maybe she, you know, waved them off. But most of the people I saw were too busy and they were going on their path, you know, no time to stop. And that was almost me. And here's the other thing I know is that when Brian showed up with a can of gas, there was instant peace and a sense that things were going to be okay. And it was good news of great joy for them. And it was goodwill that was passed on to this woman and her daughter, who I'm sure passed it on to someone else. And this is the thing I really know is that Brian left feeling joy. He found great joy and having a chance to be an angel for somebody else. You see, there's opportunities like this all the time. And when enough people do this, there's 2 billion Christians. So I just want you to imagine 2 billion people doing, let's say two or three of these every day, you know, four, six billion acts of kindness, compassion, mercy, justice, that's got to move the needle. So I, I was thinking there was a, uh, a story one of you shared with me a couple of weeks ago. It was, uh, it was the Blue Valley uh, Senior High 
students on the football team, Blue Valley High School football. And I graduated from Blue Valley High School and I was really proud of this story. So a group of the high school seniors said that they wanted to do some acts of service um, for their senior year on the football team. And so they went and they served the homeless uh, one meal and then they, uh, they came back and they decided that they would... Um, that they would take an offering and that they would provide bicycles. They wanted to buy bicycles for kids in foster care. They'd heard about this. So every month they were doing something and they passed a football helmet around and collected 1800 bucks from the seniors on the Blue Valley High School football team. How amazing is that? And they bought bicycles for kids who wouldn't have had them otherwise. I want you to hear this. Good news of great joy, peace on earth, goodwill to all, right? They, they were doing Christian acts. Whether all those kids are Christians or not, I have no idea. What I do know is that they were doing the things that Jesus taught and then uh, the last thing they did is they decided that towards the end of the season that they would collect books for kids to be donated to our bookmobile here at Resurrection. We give away about 60,000 books a year to kids who wouldn't have books otherwise in the Kansas City area, low-income communities. It's a really fun thing. And when the high school seniors said they were going to do it, all the rest of the football team decided they were going to do it too and ended up five SUVs filled with books. Here's a picture of some of the kids dropping off some of these books. That was just a small part of all the books these kids delivered. These are kids from the Blue Valley High School football team. I was so proud of them. And then I want you to see this picture from the end of the season. And, uh, and that's the Blue Valley High School football team. But what I see when I look at that is a bunch of angels, a whole company of angels. And those who were serving, they were bringing good news of great joy for all the people, including the kids who couldn't afford a book. All right. I, I want to give you an invitation. So every year we give away the entire Candlelight Christmas Eve offering. We give it to support and help uh, low-income people, uh, children and their families. Half of it goes international. Half of it stays right here in Kansas City. And this year, as we were looking for what projects will we support, we have about five projects here in Kansas City. But the biggest one of them is going to receive a large chunk of these funds, the Kansas City funds. We went to Swope Health Center, which provides health care for 200, let's see, 47,000 people in Kansas City, 280,000 uh, hospital visits a year. And, uh, and they provide this for people, 80% of whom are at or below the poverty level. 20% of their patients have zero uh, insurance at all. So they make too much to qualify for Medicaid and they have no, no insurance. So they are a source of hope and good news and peace for people who are struggling. Now, we wanted to see how we could help. And they said, well, we have this mobile dental clinic and it goes around to the schools because you see single moms can't take off work and go get their kids out of school for half a day and take them to the dentist so the kids don't ever go to the dentist. They said 20% of the kids that we see have uh, problems with their teeth. Many of these kids, they share a toothbrush with their other, with their other you know, brothers or sisters. It's a, it's a struggle. And we, we can visit 2,700 kids a year. We have, uh, we have the x-ray machine. We have hygienists. We have a dentist. And we go out and we take the dentist to them. And I thought, how cool is that? Our team thought that too. And our team said, hey, so what's the holdup? And they said, we need another bus. If we had a second bus, we could see 2,700 more kids. But we don't have $500,000 to be able to do this. And our team came back and said, you know what? We think God's calling us to buy a second dental clinic, a mobile dental clinic. Take a look at this story about Swope Health and the dental mobile dental clinic that they have. So Swope Health is a fairly qualified health center, community health center, uh, born in 1969 in the basement of the Metropolitan Missionary Baptist Church uh, to serve uh, the underserved communities all over the Kansas City metro area. The heart of what we do is attempting to counteract uh, historic neglect for certain communities. Uh, and really serve the whole person in terms of uh, all their needs um, so they can have dignity and uh, a route to health and wellness. 
Urban Core Kansas City is basically who we serve and who've been the patients supporting this organization for the last 54 years. So when our mobile dental unit is out for a day, we have um, students, um, patients coming on to the mobile units and they are receiving a full preventative dental visit. So we are taking x-rays, we are taking photos of the inside of their mouth, we're doing a full cleaning, and then they um, have a treatment plan created by by a dentist um, and then they go home with a uh, home care kit and smiles and good memories of being at the dentist. Um, when you have a mobile unit, you can go directly to the school and the child may miss less than an hour of educational time and they receive a full preventative visit. So we basically, it's 25 to 30 kids a day and we basically do preventative services on the bus. We do cleanings, fluoride, x-rays, um, they get an exam, uh, SDF if they need it, and sealants at that time of service. It's a clinic on wheels, um, but kids feel way more comfortable, I feel, at their school. Uh, one in five kids literally have a dental problem that they can't get access to care to. Winnie, Winnie the Winnebago, makes that access completely available to them. Uh, we see them in the school. We have tons of kids that get on the bus that tell us they don't even own a toothbrush. Um, they're sharing a toothbrush. Um, can they take two because their brother, their sister doesn't have one, their mom doesn't have one? Take five. Take as many as you need. We are called tooth fairies wherever we go. And you know, when I look at them, I don't see tooth fairies. I see human angels, servants of God who see a need and have said, let's go out and let's bring good news of great joy, even for kids living in poverty who don't have their own toothbrush. And they're bringing peace on earth and goodwill to all as they're doing the work of Jesus, the one whose birth we celebrate today. Listen, I wanna invite you to be a part of making that possible. One of the coolest things here is there's a whole group of people, something no one of us could do, but we all have a chance to be a part of this to make a difference. So last year we raised about $2 million in, in Christmas Eve and 500,000 of whatever we raised this year, the first 500,000 is going to that project you've just seen. We, are, we have schools, we have medical clinics, we have things that we're doing across the country and around the world. Most of it, half of it here in Kansas City. I wanna ask you, I wanna ask you to consider being a part of this. We all struggle. What are we gonna get for people that we love for Christmas? Here at Resurrection, I tell our folks, whatever you're doing for your family, would you consider giving an amount equal to what you did for your family in the Candlelight Christmas Eve offering? Not everybody can do that. Some people give 10 times that, whatever they spend on their own family, 50 times in, in a couple of cases. But for many of us, we may not be able to do all of that, but we can do something. And I wanna encourage you to think about for the people in your family, if you think about you spend 30, 40, 50 bucks on a gift, why don't you do that for every person in your family, at least that. If you can, if you can't, that's okay. You don't have to do anything. But I wanna give you the opportunity to be angels today to bring good news of great joy for all people. Peace on earth and goodwill to humans. All right, so this is the invitation. Christ came. He was born as our savior, our Messiah and our Lord. And he invites us to follow him and to do his work. And in the process of doing that, each one of us, every, every one of us in whatever little ways we can, we find that we bring Good news of great joy for all people. I want to end with Milo once more. Take a listen to this one more time. Guess what I am for the nativity? I'm a classic one. Classic role, is it? Classic part? Yeah. Um, Joseph? No. Uh, uh, one of the three wise men? No. But it's a classic part? Yeah. Okay. Um, you tell me then, because... I'm door holder number three. I'll be holding doors. That's amazing! Holding doors for who? Um, probably 
um, Joseph and Mary. Oh my gosh, were you pleased when they said that? And I was like, I'm a door holder, get in there, let's go, yeah. So here's my question for you. What role will you play in this real life nativity pageant? Are you looking for the limelight? Or what's in it for you? Or are you willing to be with great joy, door holder number three? Let's offer our lives to Christ to be his servants now, to be his living angels on this earth to do his work. Would you pray with me? And I'd like to invite you to bow your heads and you might just simply whisper this prayer. Jesus, I wanna follow you. Save me from myself and from my sin. Make me the person you want me to be. Help me to pay attention and use me to push back the darkness, to live good news of great joy for all people. Peace on earth and goodwill to everyone. Use me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for watching this week's sermon. We'd love for you to join us again for live worship online or in person. To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, please visit core.org. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.